Wild Indian, the debut film from Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr., premiered at Sundance this week. It tells the story of two cousins growing up on an Ojibwe reservation in Wisconsin. Makwa is quiet and seems to harbor a darkness because of the abuse he suffered at home. Teto seems more open and sensitive. Then something terrible happens, and we flash forward 30 years to find Makwa now going by Michael and living a very good life on the West Coast. He's played by the excellent Michael Greyeyes and is married to a woman played by Kate Bosworth, and they have a young son. One of his co-workers is played by Jesse Eisenberg, but it's kind of unclear if one of them is the other's boss and also what they actually do. The film made a big impression on me at Sundance and on everyone who saw it. And I was thrilled to talk with Corbine and one of the film's producers, Thomas Mahoney. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker, and here now is Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. and Thomas Mahoney talking about Wild Indian. Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr., Thomas Mahoney, it's a huge honor to talk with you both about Wild Indian. I really admired and enjoyed this movie. Um, oh, why don't you. you just say where the idea came from? How did this start? Uh, yeah, I, I was living in Berkeley, California. Um, I, I lived there only for about a year when I, when I was about 24, 25. And uh, it was the first place I ever lived for any extended period of time without like outside of my reservation and outside of like all well, the Minnesota area too, um, where, where I didn't have like access to like, I guess my, my family or my people. And um, I, yeah, I, I was feeling just pretty disconnected. Like I was, I was homesick. So I started kind of thinking about like what it would be like if a, a family member or a cousin came by and visited me and if there would, be tension or what, what that would be like and um I was living kind of like a different kind of lifestyle out there than I you know I, I was you know on the I live on a reservation right now um but you know I, I live I was living a different lifestyle out there than I was here and I was just kind of like starting to think about like cultural clashes between say somebody that you know from Mille Lacs or from Bad River where I'm from and somebody that would live in that kind of area so it was it that's how it started I was just kind of writing about Literally, like, what if my cousin came to visit me? And then I kind of continually upped and up the stakes. And then soon there was, like, a murder. And um, that's what was going on between them. And, uh, and yeah. yeah. And then it just became a character study. That, like, I did, like, 20 drafts or more, more than that, really, to be honest. But What is your elevator pitch for this movie? Because it's, it's going to be, a, <laughs> it's going to arouse some strong reactions, I think. Oh, I, I never had one. That's why it takes took seven years to get made. <laughs> you know, it, it's about you know two two cousins who I don't I don't know I, I, I don't know if I can answer that much. But Thomas, what's yours? He would probably have a better one. My, I usually tell people it's about these two natives um, that grew up together and they did a very horrific thing. Um, one of their classmates and. We cut to 30 years later, one has completely compartmentalized it, moved on with his life, tried to have become a different person and buried it. And the other person has completely let it consume his life and has never been able to um, get over it. And they confront each other um, at that moment in their life later on. And that's kind of where I leave it off. Yeah. The one who's compartmentalized it, Makwa, uh, who now goes by Michael, has kind of become a yuppie. 
and it's like <laughs> very, very admirable, sleek life, and seems to be trading on the fact that he's the only Native American in his office. Is that the case, or am I reading it that way? No, that that's the case. I mean, the the only identity he has is whatever he can use to help him get ahead, and that's that's who he became. He kind of gave up everything um, that he has, except for the parts that he could use. And he uses it. I mean, there's one amazing scene where he asks a coworker if his ponytail is getting too long. And the coworker is played by Jesse Eisenberg, who's like the most awkward white guy you could possibly ask that question. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did where, where did you come up with that scene? That was so perfectly encapsulating everyone's motives. Right. Actually, it was it was kind of a blessing in disguise that Michael wouldn't cut his hair, couldn't cut his hair for the film. You know, it's you know how the length of his hair is kind of how you know native actors get work because it makes them look that much more denotably native. So he wasn't able to cut his hair. So I had to figure out a way to like bake it into the narrative where he had, you know, where he. Why he would keep his hair, but also like live in this completely new new life and have this completely new identity, and I I thought that you know there there are people out there and we've heard about this in the news uh, that use identity as as a means to to get a leg up in the world, and um, it was like he he would be exactly the type of person this kind of like sociopath or this person that will say anything to get what he wants that he'd be the type of person that would do that um and it it just fell in line and it was kind of like you know as i was rewriting the script when when i realized michael wasn't able to uh to make make the change um it kind of like informed a lot of the rest of the like in the next couple of drafts as i as i rewrote it um and then that's when jesse came on too and then i was like well it'd be really good to have like a a scene with jesse where jesse is jesse and um then i rewrote that scene for jesse too and it, it just like you know i thought it was such a good introduction to, to seeing seeing that character both characters kind of interact with each other was it especially hard to sell a movie where the native american character is as you put it kind of a sociopath as opposed to like the noble hero that Hollywood is kind of trying to present now to make up for decades of presenting the stereotype of like, you know, savagery or violence? Well, people were pretty kind. I think, you know, just given the kind of um, perspective that I was bringing and the kind of filmmaking chops that I had, you know, that you could see in my shorts. No, no one knew at the time that I could direct a feature, right? It wasn't really sold like he was a sociopath. I don't think that he's a sociopath. I think it's maybe unfair to call him a sociopath because he's a complicated, traumatized person that pushes everything down. And and in pushing everything down, he kind of pushes his his uh, capacity for empathy down as well. <clears throat> From the perspective of um, when we were when this is going out to investors or potential investors or um, people that were trying to help us along the way, the nobody really came on that angle. A lot of the compliments and feedback was always like, wow, um, really wish people told more stories like this because this is like really um, 
this feels authentic in some way. Yeah. Uh, it's not like in a almost like exploitive way where movies potentially, um, not in a bad way, but where movies have kind of an, an, an antagonistic quote unquote bad person as their lead character that you're trying to make a protagonist. And Lyle could correct me if I'm off base, but there always seems to be kind of like a little over the top nature um, to those characters, like an American Psycho or Joker more recently, things like that, where um, those characters <clears throat> are a little bit fantastical. Um, but where this is more such a, this guy exists like somewhere in the world, like w whether he's native or not, but you know, obviously that's the story we're telling, Lyle's telling, but yeah. you know, there are people like this in the world. And I think people really read that um, and understood that and they felt a, it sheds a light on an indigenous and native culture that you'd never really see in film, um, especially mainstream film, and um, even characters that are this rich and complex that people were like, wow, like, you know, I had to put that thing down, but I wanted to read it again the second I was done with it. Yeah, and people were very understanding of, of the point of view. And I think it was because, like Thomas said, it was a, a universal story it, 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 like these people do exist out in the world whether they're native na native or not and you know it, like like i said it's it's a universal kind of just retelling of somebody who has been traumatized and is and is kind of like going through life dealing with that kind of personality that derived from having been so deeply traumatized as a kid yeah you can read it as him being very cold but you can also read it as you know sort of killers aren't born they're made mm -hmm. the things that yeah um <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a reason he is the way he is. There's one thing that this will be, I'll, I'll try to phrase this in a way that doesn't spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie. He goes to a certain type of business and talks to a woman there and tells that woman that his wife used to work at the same business. <laughs> and I'm really puzzling out whether that's true or whether he was trying to kind of win her trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's still up for debate i mean i think um kate, kate had a lot of thoughts about that <laughs> i think um i think she did yeah i mean yeah i, I wrote it so yeah she she did <laughs> but um you know i, I think it, it, he's somebody that would go to a place like that with that um to, to kind of find something e like easy i guess or you know where he transactional i guess like to find something easy and transactional like that because that's the only that's kind of how he sees the world it's a big transaction i also really like that i unless i miss something i have no idea what he does for a living right <laughs> something that pays really well <laughs> i always read that that he might not even necessarily knows what he does. For <laughs> like, and I don't mean that in zest. I mean that like it goes back to the superficiality and the materialistic nature of this guy. Like he's not doing that job because he loves that job. He's doing that job because he, um, he knows that that's going to be the job that's going to get him the fancy high rise apartment and the Tesla and the garage and, you know, can go on four vacations a year with his wife all over the world. Like, it's just, it's, it's a matter of escapism through, um, through just making that his, his means to an end. Um, but there's no real, you know, 
I thought it was very clever and strong when I read the script too. And even how Saul Lyle played out those scenes, because there's a, there's another version of this where somebody could have wrote this or directed it where they're like in some type of like day trading office or, and there's like an excitement there. And this is like just a very kind of like thing where he's just, yeah, you know, I'm here, I'm making $350,000 a year and this is cool, you know, and that's it, you know, and, and, you know, so I think that that really worked too, because he doesn't, he's a guy that has an idea, he has those materialistic needs, but what are his passions too, you could ask, like, what does this guy really care about, other than trying to be that person, he cares about trying to be that person, but maybe not, you know, anything else. Yeah. Why did you call it Wild Indian? I mean, that's such a provocative title. It was this. So I was driving around my reservation. I had just come back from Berkeley. I was driving around my reservation. And I was with somebody at the time where the relationship dynamic or like the family, their family dynamic, she was, she was non-native, um, just works so much differently than mine. I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. And it felt much less free. And I was kind of... I just had this image in my head of some like native guy that was really frustrated, pouring beer on his face, being like, you can take me like just yelling, like you can take me out of the wild, but you can't take you know the wild out of me or whatever. Yeah. And just being really frustrated that, you know, he, he wasn't able to like, you know, continue to be that, you know, person that he grew up being. And I, I was, I was feeling that, but that's why I, I just kind of saw and felt that image when I was writing. Yeah. Um, writing, writing around and then wrote it, wrote it down later. But it was, um, it was the wild, like the, the, him saying like, you can take me out of the wild, you know, like um, just frustrated. And that's kind of where wild Indian came from. And then as it kind of grew on me, or, you know, the wild, wild Indian, like those are synonymous, especially in our world. Wild isn't like a slur. Wild is a compliment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how other, people that are Ojibwe native people think about it but for me I kind of I kind of like being off the cuff in, in life and uh and that was that was what I was feeling as I was kind of like getting into the other other world of, of things can you talk about your influences for this movie it doesn't feel like any other movie to me really <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, I did, I, before we started talking, I said there's parts of it that remind me of American Psycho and the way that he's so um, hard to read and seems surface level so likable, but then does stuff where you just go like, what, this guy? Um, but I feel like, you know, that's like a cartoonish, grotesque character and this is a grounded real person. Um. The question was influences before I went off on that tangent. <laughs> right, right. I, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I, I honestly can't really answer that. I mean, like, um, the movies I like are a lot different than this movie, I suppose. I really like Nicholas Winding Refn films. I really like, um, like, the, I was, I was probably just starting to kind of solidify what my tastes were and kind of figuring out what I liked. Um, or what I, what I like wanted to make when Drive came out. Um, I was like 21. So it was like right when you kind of like start to really lock it in. Um, 
but it's like a film like that plus uh you know like paul thomas anderson movies i, I like well every every time someone comes out i watch it 10 11 times like within a, a couple of months and um it's i just like that free-flowing thing of it doesn't matter when something happens in the narrative it's like you'll catch it on the second time and then you'll get to like its emotional payoff it's films like him like wes anderson like just the kind of very meta modern way of of kind of approaching um film filmmaking and, and narrative in terms of you know using 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 the tools of using the tool the narrative in this case like narrative tools and styles of that have been deeply established but also using it to elevate and to uh i guess en engage people emotionally but also kind of like have that el element of like slightly evolved um it, like engaging people in, people sincerely sincerely but also keeping them aware that they're watching something like watching a movie at the same time i guess yeah yeah so it's like, like I, I kind of like looked at it like that. But what were you saying, Thomas? I was gonna say that was one of the things that drew me to the script was that there was like, because I, re, you know, as a producer, you got to read a shit ton of scripts that come your way, and um, yeah, I, you know, producers probably read more scripts than directors do. But um, as far as like you know, as trying to get work or trying to um, figure out what your next project is, but I read it and I was like, this is not like. I don't know what the I know I don't know what the influences necessarily are. It kind of stands on its own. It's like its own. You could, I could read a script and be like, oh, this is kind of like somebody's spin on Scream because I've done a lot of horror. Or this is somebody's spin on Halloween or somebody's trying to do a another Exorcism movie or even when you do like read like things that are like actiony, you're like, oh, this is you know the classic like, oh, this is Die Hard in a blank. I read you know I read this and I was like, I don't know. Um, necessarily what I've seen recently or even in past history that, that would be like this yeah. um and that was another thing that I was like I gotta talk to this guy like when I read the script like that was kind of the one of my first thing yeah. um, so that, that was inspiring to me that it was kind of like there was I couldn't catch I didn't know what the inspirations were I was like this is this is standing on its own right now yeah. yeah and maybe it's just that i don't know what i'm doing you know what i mean i'm just throwing <laughs> throwing spitballs out there and hoping that one of them sticks you know but you know i, I can definitely I, I know the films that i like and i i think i know kind of what i'm trying to emulate or like the feelings i'm trying to emulate um but it's it just comes from like a you know watching thousands of movies you know no, I definitely wasn't saying, <laughs> I definitely am not saying it seems like you're just throwing stuff at the wall because this felt really very controlled and very <laughs> beautiful. I mean, just the way that you raised the stakes in it was so, I don't, I, I really enjoyed this movie is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, for people who always ask, what does a producer do? Um, we don't get too many producers on here. Thomas, can you explain what you did specifically with this movie? Um, uh, obviously, Lyle's here to fact check you. <laughs> yeah, Lyle's here to definitely fact check you. Um, it's a different, it's, it's no two producing jobs I ever do seem to be the same. And I think that's why the question always comes up what a producer does, because you could ask 10 different producers and you're going to get 10 different answers. And then if you ask those 10 producers about their respective projects each project's going to have its own answer of the role that they did so 
unfortunately it's not as clear um but specifically what i did on this project was i was um coming off a couple um tv projects that i had done um uh, some television movies i had pretty much staked a claim in a career in low budget genre uh, filmmaking i've worked with i mean i've worked with corman i've I've done, uh, I did a movie with Wes Craven, even though that wasn't like so low budget, but it was a decent, um, it was an indie movie, um, Girl in the Photographs at TIFF. Um, and, you know, I've done a fair share of stuff in that realm. And I don't get scripts like this on my desk a lot or thrown my way. And, um, you know, through, through mutual connections, um, ended up with this script. And I was like, I gotta talk to this guy. and at that point, this project kind of needed, and Lyle can specify too, Lyle was a producer on this project, obviously through him having this project. And Lyle had tried for a while to get this project made on his own. Um, but as we know, a lot of stuff sometimes take years to get going. And it seemed like this project needed a, you know, this project, what this project needed was a producer to kind of like shape it, like say, okay, well, what's the money um, how much money do you guys have? Okay, this is how we can make these costs work. This is what the schedule is going to look like. A lot of pre-production planning, building a structure and a production plan um, because some of the money was in place, but not all of it. So we, you know, some of those trains still needed to hit the station, but there was different permutations of it. There was a scenario where there's going to be X amount of money. There's another scenario where there's going to be X amount of money. So we're starting to see how all these things worked. And for me, you know, I grabbed the script because I was like, this is something I really want to do. But I honestly believe like, as we know, you know, not to speak to the budget, but a lot of these independent films are very hamstrung by their financial situation. Yeah. And I take a lot of pride in the movies that I had made up to this point and the fact that I was going to be able to take that low budget mindset and put it towards this beautiful like script and movie. And I think it's kind of pridefully, I could say, and Lyle can say whatever he wants. Um, it's what we needed because I don't, I tell Lyle this all the time. Um, I don't know if another producer with the circumstances that we had production wise, um, budgetary, schedule wise, schedule availability for all these acts, I don't know if another producer could do it, but I had been doing it for such a long time on all like the lower budget stuff I was doing. Um, that I was able to do it for this project. And I say that with a lot of pride. You know, I was really happy to be able to make this work. And, um, you know, we had a tight schedule, um, 18, 19 days. We shot in Oklahoma with three week prep. We had never been to Oklahoma before. Lyle had gone there for a scout for like a, a few days um, earlier in the year when we shot in 2019. But I had never stepped foot in Oklahoma. My line producer had never been to Oklahoma. And, uh, we just got there and we had three weeks because Jesse Eisenberg had needed to work on a specific day. So we were backing into that date. Uh, and also when you have limited money, you don't have two months to go on the ground and hang out and figure out how to make a movie somewhere you've never been. So we can only make it work for that, that amount of time. So I said, okay, we got to get there three weeks before Jesse starts. We got there. We had no locations. We had no local connection. We didn't know where to get the gear from. We didn't know where to get, um, local support i didn't know any of the crew didn't know anything about the area and luckily you know we found some awesome people in, a, in, a, in oklahoma 
uh, its local production services company, uh, Thunderbird Films. And we just kind of started to like start churning and putting this thing together and finding locations that worked and finding things that were able, we had to do a lot of local casting. That was another thing we had to do. Um, and that was part of it. But again, it's not just the production. Then you have to end, everything has to go on the other side of that. And what happened here was we ended production missing scenes because what we were supposed to do um, was go shoot in San Francisco because the movie takes place in San Francisco when we're done in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. We had some exteriors. There's three or four scenes that we needed to get while we're up there. And uh, when I went to San Francisco to prep that, I actually left Lyle in Oklahoma with like three or four days left on the schedule. And I went to Oklahoma, I went to San Francisco to prep that. And um, we got rained out. It was the worst storm to hit the Bay Area in 20 years on the weekend we were going to shoot. And all the flights got canceled um, right before, um, and nobody could land there. The only person that got, that literally got to San Francisco for that unit was Michael Grayeyes, our lead, who was coming in from Toronto. And it was like a different flight path that did not get affected by that storm. <laughs> this is the Thanksgiving weekend of 2019. Lyle called me. I, I'll never forget. I'm in the airport parking lot waiting to pick up Michael Grayeyes. Um, and Lyle called me. And he's like, did you hear what happened? <laughs> That's never a call a producer wants to get <laughs> at any point. And I'm like, um, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, all the flights got canceled. And I was like, oh. And we were like, they were supposed to fly there the next morning and we were going to shoot the next day. And nothing could get there for like the next like 20 hours. And everybody was on a short window. DP already had another job starting Monday. Michael had to move on to something else. Um, there, were, there was all sorts of wacky available availability issues and we just couldn't do it. We couldn't. We couldn't extend ourselves. We couldn't say we're going to hang out here for another week. We'll figure it out. <clears throat> Ran out of resources. And then um, we planned a greater part of the last spring or, of 2020, um, January to March, trying to figure out a way to pick up these scenes. And we were getting close. And we targeted March to make this work. Well, we all know what happened in March of 2020. <laughs> and now the movie is on then the, the movie was on the bench and we had no idea how we we're going to finish this thing we had scenes to shoot we had to do more editing we couldn't start sound music color until all that stuff was done so the summer was kind of like i wouldn't say wasted but the summer was just a time where nothing really uh could happen and then you know we always targeted this movie for sundance and now that's windows starting to close now because we don't don't have anything and miraculously um, we were able to find a tight window in September that we shot the San Francisco stuff. We actually had to shoot it in LA and by the, you know, by the grace of God, Michael Gray eyes was in town in LA working on our television show. Um, he's based in Toronto. So it made it easy. So Lyle flew in and, uh, we had some help on the ground and we were able to put together a little shoot and we we're able to pick up all the scene, most of the scenes that we didn't get in San Francisco. And then we were able to finish the film. And uh, yeah, but all that process, you know, you're, you're working on balancing the budget and the aftermath of production. You got to balance the budget on the aftermath of, you know, not having that shoot in San Francisco. We're working with actor availability. Are we, or aren't we going to pick up these scenes? 
Um, there was scenes that in San Francisco just never made into the final film that, you know, those had actors that I had to, you know, have on hold and people were on hold. Like, it was like when are we going to finish this movie? When are we going to finish these scenes? So it was yeah. a little nerve wracking because, and then people ask, they're like, is this a, is this a COVID movie? And it's like, well, yes and no. Like it's no in the sense that our main photography in principle um, was not, but this film was heavily affected by COVID in its, um, in its way of uh, having to shoot in COVID, but also just being stunted for the greater part of the year. And, and we are horror stories. Lyle knows a lot of people that are independent filmmakers. I, I have a Rolodex of colleagues that are producers and it was a terrifying place to be because we heard stories of films that started and they got, they, they got a week of photography in March and they had to shut down. They were never gonna remount again. Um, productions that were just about to shoot that because of COVID got stopped and they're still never shot again. Um, I even think there was a few Sundance uh, lab films potentially that got that got cut off by COVID and you know yeah, really very, yeah it was a really scary time because we were just like when are we are we going to be able to finish this movie this year? Um, and we did. We took it all the way to the end. I mean, Lyle, myself, and Lyle are given a lot of credit. Um, I mean, we're QCing sound reels and color stuff like Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, like it was just to make this Sundance deadline because we had to, we had to get it in. Sundance gives you like a mid-January kind of like drop dead deadline. So all roads lead to that. And as a producer, you're just like on top of that process, making sure <laughs> the supervisor's doing what they, you know, we had, we had a partner there and, um, you know, calling Lyle, being like, hey, did you see this reel? Um, you know, and then getting his notes and making sure all that stuff goes out. So it's kind of like you're just, you're almost like that, you're like a dispatcher and you're making sure all the trains are coming in out of the station at the right time. So there was a lot of complex level uh, producing on this thing. But Lyle, you know, he's a producer on this film too, deserves a lot of credit. We have um, Eric Tavidian, who's another producer on the project, who's based in France. Um, Logical Pictures, our primary investor. Um, company and you know it's a great team you know just they really respected the film and they were able to let us work um you don't get that a lot you know you especially with a first-time director i think they really took trust in lyle's previous work in his shorts yeah. and the screenplay itself um but you know i've been on a lot of stuff they, people just don't finance movies and let you just go off and and do what you want they people come to set people check in they want you know, they, they, they scrutinize dailies and, and these are, these are logical pictures was an amazing partner. Um, and Eric as another producer was good. So, you know, he deserves as much credit as anybody else in, uh, that's in this room right now. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you know, like I said, I'm really <clears throat> proud of what I was able to bring to the project because it was, it's kind of like, I, cause I, I, I teach and, you know, mentor at AFI, um, and, and, I deal with a lot of young filmmakers and a lot of say, you know, a lot of people want advice or my biggest advice is like, it's like, be ready. Cause you never know when something is going to come your way that you have to be ready for. And I was ready for this. I felt after, like I said, like after producing all those films, I have no regrets in producing any of the low budget genre I did, but <laughs> you know, having a script like this come my way is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I was, I felt I was ready for it. I was like, let's, 
let's go, let's figure this thing out. I think Lyle can speak to the frustration of that as a first time director, <laughs> never being on um, set, but you know, <clears throat> hopefully it came clear um, and uh, we were able to make it work. Wow. That was, uh, long, that was a long answer for you. <laughs> what does a producer yeah. do? But, but it's hard I, to answer that question. As a viewer, <laughs> I'll just tell you guys, as a viewer, I went, what a completely meticulous, clean, I don't want to say slick in a negative way, but like it has a very professional sheen to it throughout. It has like a very nice sort of austere tone in places and a very... I mean, just detached enough to be inviting, which I think is what you're talking about with making people aware that they're watching a film. I never realized at any point that you were shooting in Oklahoma. I thought you were in Milwaukee and Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> so you definitely did a great job with the locations and everything about key seeing, everything about sound. I wouldn't have, I never would have known. I listened to it on really good headphones. It sounded great. So, you know, I, I guess it's that thing where you only see the flaws um, or you only remember the hardships, but as a you know, completely neutral third party. I thought it was great. Like I thought you did a really nice job. So that's uh, you know that's something I tell oh, a lot, people, especially my my students at AFI is that nobody gives a shit what happens behind the scenes when they watch the movie. What's what they're watching is what's on the screen. Nobody cares about how hard that day was, or I lost two shots, or it was cloudy outside, so we didn't get it, or. They don't care about that stuff. You have to deliver something that's going to be in that 90 minutes or 100 minutes or however long your film is because that's all they care about. So all the drama and all the BS that happens behind the scenes on the day, yeah, those are cool war stories and battles that you're going to have. But at the end of the day, audience don't care. They need to see it the way you saw it and the way you just translated to us. Otherwise, we all fail. So, yeah. you know, it's that's what they care about. And uh, the other thing is that I do want to compliment because I think it goes with a lot of credit to Eli Bourne, our cinematographer yeah. and Jonathan Guggenheim, our production designer, because that what you're describing does not happen without them and their talent. That was Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. And Thomas Mahoney talking about Wild Indian, one of the big films out of Sundance this year. You know, almost exactly a year ago for this podcast, we talked to Carrie Mulligan and Emerald Fennell about Promising Young Woman. Our younger listeners may not believe this, but we actually conducted that interview at Sundance in person. This is when you could be in the same room as other human beings. But thinking back, you know, Promising Young Woman turned out to be one of my favorite movies of last year, and now it's getting many well-deserved award nominations. And just watching the Sundance films this year, I wondered which ones were going to be up for lots of awards. I feel like Wild Indian has a very good shot. I feel like Coda, which everyone loved, uh, is kind of a layup. And I really appreciated and enjoyed Philly DA. There were just so many great films at Sundance this year, and we're really excited about all the filmmakers we're going to be talking to in the next few months uh, out of Sundance and out of other festivals. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Please forward it to your friends. Please listen to more episodes. Subscribe to our newsletter at moviemaker.com slash newsletter. And in the words of Dale Cooper, uh, played by Kyle McLaughlin, past guest on this podcast, every day, give yourself a present. Today, my present is going to be a local burrito from La Plancha on 3rd Street here in Los Angeles. Uh, they're not paying us to say that. They don't know who we are. They don't, will not care. But uh, they make a really good 
egg and cheese and other stuff burrito. So do something like that nice for yourself. Have a wonderful weekend and see you back here next week when our guest will be a rising actor you may not have heard of yet, but give the guy a chance. He's very good. Gary Oldman. See you soon.